Father in heaven, we are so thankful that we can worship you. We know we don't deserve it. We don't deserve to come into your presence. We don't deserve to be called by your name. We don't deserve to be your flock or your sheep. And yet you and your grace have chased us down and brought us back. You loved us, you found us, you saved us, you redeemed us. You're transforming and remaking us. You assure us, you encourage us, you give us hope. Lord, in today's message, I pray that you would do that. I have no idea where people are at. I have no idea how many people will hear this. I have no idea how many people will tune in or tune out. But I pray that forever, for whoever is listening today, that your word would speak to them. In Jesus' name we pray. We love you. Amen. Welcome here if you're just joining us. My name is Pastor Jeremy Lobdell. Um, We are certainly glad that you've made it a point to be faithful to God and consistent in worship and listen to his word and sing praises to him today. I got a question for you as we start, and that question is this. Why do they call it a trailer? Now, it's been a long time since I've been to the movies. Of course, the movie theaters in Michigan are still shut down. But if you go to a movie, or even if you just look one up online, perhaps one of the first things you're going to do is Google the trailer. How many of you, in whatever room you're in right now, say, I love to watch the trailers? How many of you say, I prefer not to watch the trailers? We have a bit of a divide in our own family. Some like to see it, like myself, and some others don't, because they think it spoils the ending or gives away too much of the movie. But either way, regardless of where you're at, you've probably heard of such a thing as a trailer. Even my little kiddos are like, Dad, can we watch a trailer? Dad, can we watch a trailer? And sometimes a trailer is even better than the movie itself. But why do they call it a trailer? Well, I looked that up on the great source of all information, Wikipedia this week. And what I learned is back in the day when they showed multiple movies at once, they weren't as long as today's film, but instead they'd have like a an A film and a B film, and actually the B film would come before the A film. And after the B film, they would have trailers for other movies. They'd have little short clips before you got to the A film. And so following the B film, there were short clips for future films, and those short clips were called trailers because they trailed the B film before the feature and so, of course, today you don't have the B film, you just have the film, but you got tons of advertisements and then the trailers and 30 minutes or an hour later, you get to the actual thing. Well, in a trailer, what it does is it gives a preview of what is to come. We'll talk more about trailers later on today, so just tuck that away. But let me give you a reminder of where we've been in the book of Mark. So as we jump into our passage today, you'll know how this all connects or how it goes together. So last week we talked a little bit about expectations versus reality. There's what we see in our mind and there is what is real and what we experience in our world. Oftentimes those things don't line up. And in Mark chapter 8, Jesus is helping the disciples 
understand how that works for a Christian. Sometimes we want to have our cake and eat it too. We want to have the perfect, ultimate, luxurious, easy life and still be the best Christian ever. And basically Jesus says, that ain't going to happen. Let me remind you of Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 35, before we get into today's text in Mark chapter 9. Verses 34 and 35 of Mark 8 say this, Jesus, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, said to them, If anyone should come after me, let him deny himself, not the funnest part of Christianity, take up his cross, definitely not fun, and follow me. For whoever would save his life, which is what we naturally do, will lose it. But whoever will lose his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. So Jesus elaborates the upside-down, topsy-turvy principle of the kingdom of God, that whoever would sacrifice will actually gain, but those who try to gain will actually lose. In other words, no pain, no gain, no cross, no crown. That was the message we looked at last week in Mark chapter 8. Now this week, what we're going to do is get into uh, Mark chapter 9 and... Like the disciples, if you're like me, you hear that message and you're like, whoa, what's going on here, Lord? I mean, why in the world would I want to follow you if it involves so much pain and so much suffering? If we could just be honest, just you and me, Lord, really what I want to ask the question is, what's in it for me? What's the benefit of being a Christian? Why am I doing this? If it's going to be hard, it's going to be difficult, there's going to be self-denial and cross. Am I really interested? What is our hope? What's in it for us? Today I want to approach that question with you from Mark chapter 9. And we're going to do it in three ways. We're going to ask three questions that you've probably asked of many other things. And those questions are, who, what, and when. Who, what, and when. Mark chapter 9 today is going to ask, answer those questions that tell us what is our hope or why are we doing this? What's in it for me? Who, what, and when. Mark chapter 9. I'm actually going to back it up a verse or two just so you can get the emphasis of this chapter, so I'm going to start in verse 38 of chapter 8, which is the last verse of chapter 8. So Mark 8:38 it says this: Jesus is talking to his disciples and the crowd around him. He says, "For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father and with the holy angels." And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. And after six days, like the six days of creation, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain. Which brings back the idea of Sinai and Theophanies and the revelation of God to Moses in the wilderness. 
And he, Jesus, was transformed, metamorphosized before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to him the all-stars, the all-time greats of the Jewish people, Elijah and Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to them, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. These tents were just like the booths during the Feast of Booths, which they make to celebrate their deliverance from Egypt traveling through the wilderness and living in tents. For Peter did not know what else to say, for they were terrified, and the cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, much like the mountain, or much like Jesus' baptism, and he says, that voice says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they saw no longer anyone with them, but Christ, Christ alone. And they were coming down the mountain and Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah must come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you, Jesus tells you, that Elijah has come, and they did him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So let's answer those three questions today, if we may. We'll start with the first one, who? Who? The first question I want to ask today is who? Or where? who are we placing our trust in? Who are we serving? This is an important question because if you're like me or if you're like a lot of us, what happens is inevitably people let us down. No doubt you're involved in a lot of different relationships. You're involved in family relationships, work relationships, church relationships, community relationships, maybe other clubs or organizations or things that you uh, have out on the peripheral. But whatever it is, there's relationships that we as human beings are engaged in. And I think if you've been around for any period of time, you would admit with me that no matter who they are, inevitably, at some point, all human beings will let you down. Even for the people who love you more than anyone else in the world. Recently, I talked to an elderly person um, as they were getting ready to transition from this life to their eternal home. They're in the hospital, and and he was going on and on and on about how wonderful his wife is. He was telling me all the good things that she does and how much he loves her and getting all emotional. And it was just a beautiful thing to see. This elderly man, nearly 90 years old, and from the beginning of their relationship decades ago, 
has remained faithful to her his entire life, and at the very end is not grumpy or disenchanted or anything else, but singing her praises up and down as if she was an angel from the Lord. <laughs> it was great. I was super encouraged, super inspired. But if I pressed, which of course I didn't at that time, but if I pressed, I am sure that at some point he would say, yeah, we had a hard time at this point in our marriage, or we had a hard time at this point in our lives, or it wasn't easy, and yeah, I broke her heart then, and she broke my heart then, and yeah, we're people. We mess up, and that's the way it works. And this is a very important question because what happens is often we get discouraged in life because somebody lets us down. But the reality is, if we maintain an expectation of perfection for other people, then inevitably that perfection will fall short. There is only one person in the entire world who will never, ever, ever let you down. And his name is Jesus. Now, what's interesting about this is we know this guy, this fellow, this person, by the name of Jesus. Some call him Jesus the Christ. They take his messianic title or his anointed or king or deliverer title and just make it his last name jesus christ some people will call him the savior other people will call him the lord but an interesting question to ask is what did jesus call himself if you're paying attention look at your neighbor and look over at them and say the son of man Now, as we look at the book of Mark and we Google this title or search this title, what we find out is the major title, the major name that Jesus called himself was, in fact, the Son of Man. Now look at your neighbor and be like, The Son of Man is this very unique and interesting title. And in my mind, when I first heard this title, I associated it with a nativity scene, probably because that's the scene most familiar to me in my culture. In the United States, we see these things coming out around Christmas, and there's Mary and Joseph and the baby, and oh, it's so beautiful. And so we think, Son of Man, you know, like the little baby who came from human beings, and that makes sense. But... If you look closer at Scripture, what you see is that while, yes, it can refer to the humanity of everyday people, which Jesus certainly had, but it also has a very specific prophetic implication that was given in Daniel chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. I think the words will also be up on the screen, but I want to read those words to you in Daniel chapter 7. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, it's more than halfway through your Bible. Daniel chapter 7, and what my hope is, is that as we look at these words of scripture, that it'll begin to transform our image in our mind what we think of when we read through the Gospels or the New Testament letters of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When the term comes up, Son of Man, it's not just a name. It is, in fact, the name. This is the most frequent name by which 
Jesus refers to himself. It's not on par with any of the others. This is the one that he claims above all the others. The Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. says this, Daniel has a vision, and he says, As I looked, thrones were placed. So the first thing you associate with the Son of Man is the throne. Rule, authority, power. And then it says, the Ancient of Days took his seat. Whoa, 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 whoa. The Ancient of Days, you mean like the Eternal One, the Almighty God, the One who is and was and is to come? Yes. Authority, rule, power, eternal nature. His clothing was white as snow. His hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was like fiery flames. Its wheels of burning fire. Oh, this is awesome. This guy is this amazingly beautiful, majestic, all white, eternal, all powerful, fire breathing, incredible being. And a stream of fire issued came out before him thousands upon thousands served him tens of thousands stand before him he makes prince ali look like a pauper and in the court he sat in judgment and the books were opened this is the son of man then in verse 13 he says i saw in the night visions and behold the clouds of heaven and there came one like Look at your neighbor, the son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And that all the peoples and nations and languages should serve him. And of his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom shall not be destroyed. That is a powerful dude. The Son of Man is described in Daniel chapter 7, the prophetic vision of the end time in which God will rule the world with justice and might. Here comes the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days. And this is the title that Jesus used to refer to himself. Now, you probably say, well, why didn't his disciples recognize it? Well, why don't we recognize anything? Lord screams and shouts at us, but half the time we don't hear him anyways. Such was the case with them. And this was a common name, so it could go both ways, which is kind of cool. Because at the same time Jesus is claiming ultimate power and authority and divinity, he's also claiming his association with humanity. And he weds those things perfectly together, as only he can, the God-man. So it is the perfect term to describe the one who will never, ever Ever fail or disappoint us. The son of man. The ancient of days. The God who sees. The God who judges. The God who's just. The son of man. The one who associates with us. And serves. And condescends to make himself known. The son of man. So the first question. I want to ask today. When we talk about why are we doing this. We're doing it for Christ. We're doing it for Jesus. We're not doing it for anyone else if we think that we're doing it for someone else they will disappoint us even our family and i know that's a hard thing to say because many of you if you're like me love your family to death and would give your life for them in an instant you wouldn't bat an eye or even think about it because they are amazing and beautiful and wonderful and so worth it but 
other people. And they will disappoint you. They will let you down and they will break your heart. And that's just the way it goes because we're all like that. We're sinners. Saved by grace. And so whatever you're doing in your life, you always have to remember the one for whom you're doing it. You're doing dishes. You're doing laundry. You're wiping bottoms. Whether it's your kiddos or your parents. Either way. You're not doing it for them. You're doing it for Christ. Jesus is the only one worth serving. Everyone else will disappoint you. Even, yea, especially the church. People criticize the church. Say there's hypocrites in church. Well, yeah, there's people in church. And we're all hypocritical at some point. None of us get it right all the time. But Jesus does. This is the one who we're serving. If you're looking for love, if you're looking for relationship, if you're looking for belonging, look no further. Looking anywhere else will disappoint. Yes, it's good to have other human relationships. Yes, he designed us that way to be in community. But ultimately, all those relationships go away. And the only one that remains is with him forever. Our best friend, our truest love, our only belonging, the one who will never, ever, ever, ever disappoint us is Jesus. Who are you doing it for? For the Son of Man. For the Son of Man. He is our only hope. So, number one, who, many of us would say Jesus. I want to emphasize today what Jesus emphasizes and that he is the son of man, the prophetic one given in Daniel chapter 7. Well, Pastor Jeremy, why are you hitting on that so hard? Well, look at your text again and see. Verse 38, the son of man. Verse 9, the son of man. Verse 12, the son of man. Over and over again, this term is how Jesus is trying to draw our attention to himself in this text. So number one, who are you serving? Jesus. Number two, why? Why? What? I mean, what? Why are we going through all this for Jesus? And then I want to ask the next question. What? What setting is your hope? Let me write that down. The what? So number two is what? Now, originally I thought about saying where, like where is your hope, but I think that's a little too nebulous. Instead, I want to be more specific and say, what setting is your hope? What setting is your hope? And the reason I'm saying that is because like people in other relationships, if if we're hoping in people other than Jesus, who we're hoping in is going to disappoint us. Similarly, if we're hoping in some setting other than the kingdom of God, all other settings will disappoint us. Now, I know the kingdom seems a bit nebulous, but let's bring it down a little and say, okay, so what? where do we normally find our happy place or our sweet rest or our good spot? And there's a lot of answers you might give to that. One, for example, might be your home. You say, oh, man, I hate my job, but I love my home. I just love going home at night, sit back, Relax, watch TV, eat some dinner, whatever. It's a good place to be. Maybe that's not the way home is for you. 
Maybe, for example, you say, actually, I like my job better than my home. I go there, I work, I get stuff done. It's all turmoil when I came home. Maybe you like your job. Maybe it's not your home or your job, but you have a hobby. You like to get away from both. And you go out to the golf course or the boat or the lake or the shopping mall or wherever, and you put it all behind you, and you just get there, and you feel good. You hunt. You go out in the fields. This is your happy place, and no doubt you you experience a taste or a hint of what heaven is like because all those other bad things seem to go away. But the reality is, just like people, all of those things will disappoint. Eventually, your home will break. Eventually, your job won't be so great. Eventually, you'll have a bad day at the golf course, and it won't be the best. Reality is, all those other things, though they might feel good for a short time, are not eternally satisfying. And I think all of us would admit that too. We work really hard to get our homes just right. We work really hard to do a good job at work. We work really hard to be able to carve out time to do the things we love and spend time with people. But even then, sometimes the best laid plans go to waste. And those things fall through. So where or what, what setting is our hope? It shouldn't be in my home, in my job, in my car, in my hobby. It shouldn't be any of those places. Instead, it should be the kingdom of of God. Now, I know it's a little bit hard to wrap your mind around it because you say the kingdom of God is so fuzzy, it's so foreign, it's so out there. What is that? Well, let's say it like this. Here's the thing. Without trying to make it overly concrete, the most important thing you need to know is that the kingdom is where we Jesus and his followers are vindicated. Here's what's so cool. You know, we think about the future And the kingdom of God. And we think about Jesus. Because it's his kingdom. But it's not just his. It's ours too. In the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians. It says that we'll be resurrected. Just like Jesus was resurrected. He's a pattern. Or a paradigm. Or a model for us. And Jesus will be vindicated. Shown to be who he says he is. And affirmed by God. And so too, just like Jesus, we who follow after him as well. Although we sinned, his work will cover us. And as a result, we will die and be resurrected. And when we are, we're given new and glorious bodies. And we will be vindicated despite all the wrongs that has happened to us and all the bad things we've ever done. At that point, the sin nature is fully eradicated. We get to spend a perfect eternity forever with God in heaven. That is a good day. That's the future hope. That's what we're looking forward to. It's vindication. It is justice. It is righteousness. It is actually the one sweet spot that will never disappoint us. There's a song out there, I think, that summarizes this really well. It's called Almost Home by Mercy Me. If you're unfamiliar with it, I put a link to the music video on our Right Now Media page. You can go there through our website, click on that, and watch the video. It's beautiful. Neat story behind it. But the idea is that this world is not our home. My home is not my home. My job is not my home. My hobby is not my home. My happy place is actually the kingdom of God. And if I'm placing my hope, or if I'm placing my faith, or if I'm looking forward to that, then I won't be disappointed when all of these other things fall short. It's an entirely different perspective, and we have to get our minds here. This is absolutely essential. Earlier, in Mark chapter 8, when Jesus rebukes Peter, 
He says to him in verse 33, Peter, get behind me, Satan. Why? For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter fell into temptation because his mind was not in the right spot. His mind was on the Messiah now. He was looking at right now. He wasn't looking at the kingdom, the future of God. He was looking at his current circumstances and saying, Lord, I want you to fix this, so don't go through suffering. Help end my suffering. And Jesus is saying, no, the only way I can end suffering forever is for me to suffer first. And so Satan, get away. I've got to go to the cross. And Peter, get your mind where it needs to be. Fall in the line, soldier. Listen here. Get your mind on the things of God. And this is the command to us too. If you look at the New Testament, what it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, is that we are transformed, we are changed by the renewing of our mind. People who throw away that miss the power and transformation of the gospel. And it's not intellectual, it's not cerebral, and to cast it as such is an over-exaggeration and unfair to the text. Do not throw away the fact that Jesus got you, gave you a brain and you need to use it. You are transformed or you are changed by the renewal of your mind. Now, listen, here's what's super cool in there. That word transformed, I kind of pounced on a little bit when we read our text earlier. Today, in Mark chapter 9, this is what, if you have titles in your Bible, is called the transfiguration. Now, that word... um, Transfigured in verse 2 is actually metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. And you probably know that. If you're a science person, you think about that with butterflies and caterpillars and cocoons. And you know, they're very hungry and so they eat a lot of stuff and eventually they turn into a beautiful butterfly. This metamorphosis is what happens here in Mark chapter 9. It's also mentioned In Matthew, when Matthew describes Jesus' transfiguration, there's only two other places in the New Testament where that word occurs. One of them is in Romans 12, 2, where it says, Be transformed by the newing of your mind. Transformed is metamorphosis. The other is in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, which says, you know, we see now darkly, but we will be changed. We will be transformed. And then we will see and understand as we should. It's only four times in the New Testament this word occurs. Twice with Jesus' transformation, his transfiguration. And twice with us seeing, knowing, transforming our minds. It's a big deal because what it tells us is there's no way to grow as a Christian if you don't get your brain in the right space. If you're thinking wrongly about God, if you're thinking wrongly about His Word, if you have the priorities in your life all out of place, then you will be like Peter and Jesus will have to rebuke you. But if you can focus on the who, the Son of Man, the what, the kingdom of God, if you can get your brain to that place, then you will begin to see transformation take place. 
The key to transformation is to begin with the who. Who are we talking about? The what. Is the kingdom of God. And when we get there, all of a sudden, things began to change. They metamorphosized. So who? Jesus. What? The kingdom. And the last one, when? When? This is no doubt the question a lot of the disciples were asking, and we were asking too. When? Is this all going to take place? Because right now I don't see it. We're like the caterpillar in the cocoon, or we're like the very hungry caterpillar, and we're eating and nothing is changing. doesn't seem to be going as fast as we would like. And what we have to understand is it is a process. In fact, it's a lifelong process. The end is not tomorrow or next week or next month or even next year. The end is the end for us, either when we die and go to heaven or when Jesus comes back. Our goal to endure until the end. So, I already gave a hint, but let me read Mark chapter 8, verse 38 again. It says this, Jesus says, Forever is ashamed of me and my words. In this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in glory of the Father and his holy angels question here is not if, but when. There is no uncertainty in Christ. In Him, the answer is always yes. And if your faith is in Him, and if your future is in His kingdom, then there is an absolute 100% guarantee that it will happen. Your faith will be made sight when Jesus returns there is no question there is no doubt there is absolute certainty and it'll be so glorious that's why recently you may have noticed our efca our denomination changed our doctrinal statement to include the word glorious describing christ's return not just because we think it's a neat adjective, but because it's essential to the good news of jesus that he is the son of man the ancient of days Fire goes out before him. Thousands sit in front of him. He opens the book to judge and he sits exalted above all. It'll be so incredible and glorious. It is beyond description. And if we can get our minds there, then everything else changes. And the golf course looks small. The lake is little. Nothing matters but for Christ and his kingdom. That is what it's all about. Any day, any time, at any point, you're experiencing discouragement. My question is, are you thinking of Christ and his kingdom? If not, you are not thinking of the things of God. Inevitably, that's when I get discouraged. I start feeling bad for myself. I see things around me and compare those and they look bigger or better for somebody else or whatever. And then I realize, what am I doing? Jeremy, you're feeling sorry for yourself. Stop it. It's not about you. It's about Christ and his kingdom. And if I'm looking for that, then every experience I come into, whether it's suffering or pain or joy or whatever, is good because it is used for God and his glory. Who are we serving? The Son of Man. What are we all about? His kingdom. And when 
when does this occur? When the Son of Man returns, it'll be powerful and glorious, beautiful and wonderful, and that is a guarantee. Well, I don't know when the movie theaters are going to open back up, but if you're part of some subscription service or something like that, you may be searching for things you can watch online. No doubt you probably go and click on that little trailer. If you were to look in Scripture at the end, at the future, that film would be called The Return of the King or The Glorious Return of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. And if right below that title you were to see a trailer and you would click on that, do you know what you would see? The Transfiguration. Mark chapter 9 is the trailer for the return of the king. This is what the disciples are seeing and this is what Jesus means when he says, hey, some of you standing here today aren't going to die until you see the kingdom of God. And we're so literal. We're like, oh, I don't understand. Jesus isn't there with all his angels. It's because he's giving them the trailer, the hint, the foretaste of what's to come. And when you see the king, you see the kingdom. Mark chapter 9 shows us the purpose, shows us the meaning, it shows us the joy. We get discouraged and we wonder, what's it all about? Why am I doing this? Christ says, pick up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. Why? If I do it for my family, at some point I'm discouraged. If I do it for my retirement, home, income, whatever, I'm discouraged. If I do it for my hobbies, they're no fun. They fall short. But if I am serving Christ in his kingdom, who? The Son of Man. Then, I am assured that when he comes again, there will be a reckoning. Every loss we suffered is repaid. Every difficulty we endured is rewarded. Every tear is removed. Pain is done away. Joy is distributed forevermore. Who, what, when? When the king returns, vindication comes. He is the who, the what, and the when. Father, we thank you and praise you for Jesus Christ, our only Savior. I know I spent a good amount of time talking today, but I hope that people heard about him. I thank you that your word is true. That you predict it and you make it happen. I pray that you would continue to do that in us as you talk about transformation. You show Jesus transformed. I pray that we would be transformed. And Lord, we'd like to see our sanctification happen sooner than later. But we know that ultimately we will experience glorification. And so in him and him alone do we place our trust. And pray, God, that if there's someone here today who hasn't believed in Jesus, they would accept him as their Savior and repent of their sins and believe in his resurrection and return for the very first time. Lord, may you answer this prayer by your power.
according to your will and for your glory. In accordance with all of that and who Jesus is, we pray. Amen.